peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, the Nefriesian. For those of you that are new to the podcast, do me a quick favor. One, subscribe to the podcast so you're notified when new episodes are released. And two, go on over and give us a follow on Instagram at Bootstraps Podcast. So, hey, it's been a little break. It's been a little while before I got some new content out to you all. I'm going to come rapid fire. I'm releasing three episodes here just before we get to the new year to wrap up season one. And I'm really excited to get this episode with Ryan Bates out to you all today. Really great conversation about finding peace in who you are along your journey and being able to walk into any room with your head up, chest out, but more so with just a sense of peace in who you are and being comfortable in your skin so you can get the most out of any and every experience. So I'm not going to belabor the point. Let's get into it. Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody your name and let them know what it is that you do. Hey, guys. My name is Ryan Bates. I am uh, someone who lives in Detroit, Michigan right now. I'm the brand manager uh, for the Fiat 500 124 Spider for the North American market working at Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. Uh, that's what's up. So it's funny. I'm, I'm Fiat, you know, has made some noise here over the past decade plus in the in the U.S. Um, and I'm seeing more and more of them as I kind of drive around. Like how how is the you know high level no confidential information? Like how is the business performing? Well, I think the auto industry as a whole right now is doing well, despite the fact that you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, you know, traditionally here in Southeast Michigan, we, t- we like to think about things in terms of how 4GM and Chrysler is doing. Uh, but if you look at the entire uh, globe right now, and especially the uh, Asian markets, which have been becoming increasingly more important for global uh, automotive health, I mean, things are, things are pretty strong. Uh, you know, what I can say is, is that my company, which traditionally we speak about here, is just calling it Chrysler. Um, I think if you walked around and you said to most people, I work for SEA, uh, they, they might give you a little bit of a puzzled look. Uh, <laughs> but we kind of we kind of end up being uh, the company that does a lot of uh, uh, merger work. So we're actually in the process of uh, formally consolidating operations and merging with uh, the Peugeot group out of France uh, and the new macro entity um which it has a real a weird word uh for a name it's called stellantis which huh. frankly to me sounds more like a fertility drug or some kind of <laughs> other medication that you would take uh but but my understanding is that organization is going to be uh formally unveiled um at the top of next year and and the thought is is that um they're going to they being former uh, uh Peugeot, they're going to operate principally in the European market, and then we'll keep on operating here in North America. Awesome. Have you, with, with this role, have you gotten to travel over to Europe much prior to the pandemic? Yes and no. Uh, so I've been able to travel um, since I've been with the company, uh, but it was more so in my, in my former role. So I, I joined the company a little bit over five years ago, and I joined our corporate leadership program. And uh, the way that it was set up for, for the listeners who don't you know, necessarily come into contact with a lot of people who went to business school, a lot of people who exit business school, they end up going into leadership development programs 
because they think it'll fast track them at the company that they're joining. Right. And really what those programs are designed to do is give you a rotational experience. Um, so you learn a lot about the enterprise end to end. And so for me, you know, I did that, but my program was situated a little bit differently. Whereas as opposed to like working within the businesses, I worked doing operational improvement within the compliance group. So every quarter uh, I switched projects and got to learn about another uh, part of the company. So whether it was manufacturing, procurement, sales and marketing, and so on, over the course of a little bit over two and a half years, I got a chance to see a wide swath of the company. And that's where I did a lot of my traveling. But I, I pretty much went all over. I, pr I probably think the, the, in quotation, coolest project I did uh, took me over to Europe to answer your question, uh, where I spent about two and a half months continuously uh, working um, on a Maserati uh, procurement um, issue. So I got to go to Paris, uh, London, uh, the headquarters in Italy, which is in a, a small city about an hour and a half uh, south of Turin uh, called Modena. So that's where yeah. Maserati is from. Yep. And so uh, that was probably, again, again, the coolest on paper, but I went all over. I went to Mexico. I went to a, a lot of different regional operations that we have in the U.S. So Man, more so on the leadership development program, but but still a lot of travel in the last five years, nonetheless. That sounds like the trip of, of my dreams when I think about. So I've never I've never been to Europe. I've spent a lot of time traveling. Just Europe has not been a place that I've traveled to yet. Um, but when I think about, you know, going to Italy and the cuisine and the wine to France, you know, Spain, Portugal, like, man, like that sounds like an epic like travel, did you get any chance to like unwind and enjoy the trip, you know, like on the weekends or whatever, or was it just like work, 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 go, go, go? Well, I mean, at the, at the, at the expense of possibly uh, incriminating myself to my current employer, I mean, I like to joke and say it was two and a half months of paid vacation. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I definitely enjoyed it. I think for me, the, the thing that was really nice about it is, you know, back in college, I was a double major in economics and Italian. Oh, wow. And I think that, you know, what's interesting is a, a country like Italy, which is, you know, give or take 65, 70 million people strong, you know, it's a very, it can be a very monolithic place when you're not in, say, Rome, which has millions and millions of people. Right. So when you see someone who looks like me and they can speak your language fairly decently. Right. I mean, again, college was you know, 20 years ago for me, but I mean, I still try to do, you know, I read, there's a, uh, a newspaper out of Milan uh, called Corriere della Sera. And so I, I try to read that, you know, at least a few times a month just to keep the words circulating right. in my head. Right. Uh, but it's of course different when you're interacting with somebody naturally and, 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 uh, and you're in person, but it was, it was a great experience. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So Mr. International, you can out here worldwide doing it. Um, in your, in your role, in your current role, coming back now to like you being at Fiat, like what, what does that entail from, uh, what does being a brand manager entail, um, uh, in the automobile industry? Cause I've, I've worked in consumer packaged goods my entire time, uh, at least working in brand. Um, so I'm curious, like, what does that entail on your end? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and it's funny, you know, I think that to the point that you just made about how a brand manager role may differ from industry to industry. I just think also 
the way that as marketers, we think of each other uh, can also differ from industry to industry. For me personally, if you just kind of think about the four traditional P's of marketing, mm-hmm. for me, I work principally on the pricing and product and to a lesser extent on the promotion and placement of, mm. uh, of, of, my, um, of my products. So from a product standpoint, what I'm doing is making sure that the two uh, vehicles that I manage are as competitive as possible in the segments in which they play. So the kind of example I would give for that would be, let's say uh, a competitor on their p- base level price class has a leather seat and we offer a cloth seat. Right. Uh, you know, we would look at the possibility of, you know, upgrading that material. So for me, I would be uh, trying to get a business case together, which has our engineering team studying that um, and then trying to look at whether the net present value um, of that, per, you know, that per, uh, particular item would be worthwhile upgrading to right. uh, from a promotional standpoint and then turn pricing standpoint. Uh, we're also looking at how those changes on the front end may affect where we fall in the price distribution in relation to our competitors. And right. then in turn from the promotional side, trying to come up with incentives which keep what we call our, our CFTP or customer facing transaction price respectable um, so that we're not adding content, but in turn losing uh, customer base and in turn share because we're pricing ourselves too aggressively in relation to those we do um, we do business against. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because people, <laughs> I think people, take, when, they, when they think about marketing or, or brand, they 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 tend to jump to these really simple assumptions of like, why don't they just add this to it? It's like, well, are people willing to pay for that? Right? Because like, right. we can we can add that. Like you know, modern technology is like, we, there's a lot of things that we can incorporate into a product, or in your specific case, into an automobile. Right. How much are you willing to pay for? Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I mean, to be honest, you know, I I found. Um, you know, marketing as a second career. So I, I didn't realize that I was a product person until I went to business school. And Mm -hmm. then I started thinking about all the things that I do from a, from a hobby standpoint, the interests that I hold and how much I was naturally thinking about the things that I then turned into a profession. So an example of that right now, to your point of, Oh, we can add it is, uh, you know, I unashamedly uh, became uh, a Peloton buyer about <laughs> three, three months ago. And, uh, you know, they're in the news right now, uh, circulating the interwebs because they released a new version of their bike that right. has some features uh, that I think probably a lot of their subscriber base would like. But the controversial aspect of it is, is that if you bought a bike within the last 30 days, they're giving you a free swap out. Right. Those like us um, who bought a bike within this pandemic window, because obviously you can't, you know, go out freely and go to the gym. You know, I think it ruffled some people's feathers because I mean, this bike isn't particularly cheap. No, it's not. And, (laughs) and, and so for the people who fill out that 30 day window, I mean, the amount of trade-in that they're giving you is a fraction of what the bike costs. So to your point, yeah, you can add this feature, but how much are you willing to pay for it? And then in turn, you know, how, how are your, how's your core audience? And in turn, the people that you want to rope in, how they're affected by, 
you know, that change that you might make. Yeah, no, that's real. And there's, there's always going to, there's like this, like, this group that gets caught in the middle, which I'm a part of, right? Because I mean, I, I bought mine's back in April. Uh, mm-hmm. And when I found out I was outside the, the, the swap out window, like, but my bike is still brand new. Like, right. I, like, I, like I just bought it. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to trade it in. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to stick with the older bike and not even, um, I'm just going to miss out on all these new features that they added, but I'm, I'm happy with the bike. You know, it's, it's living up to, uh, its reputation. So I'm not complaining too much, but it, it did end up stealing a little bit of like the buzz and the joy that came from like, Oh, I bought this new Peloton. I'm enjoying riding every day. Now all of a sudden there's this new bike that's out there. Um, but we we gonna have to get you, man. You gonna have to join this Peloton group that we're in, man. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good place of like trash talk and accountability. Yeah, no, no, and, and I think I mean on that point, you know, that's kind of what Peloton as a whole is really trying to promote. They their their bet, and they kind of just fortuitously fell into their laps, um, you know, during the coronavirus outbreak. Is they're trying to sell you on the fact that you're more comfortable working out in the confines of your own home um, and you won't ever want to return to a gym, even when things loosen up. And Oh, by the way, there is this huge subscriber base that you can join into and you can ride with friends that live in other cities and, you know, all that other stuff. And, you know, I, I think that that, you know, going back to the whole product side of things, you know, hopefully from their standpoint, they thought this through because, you know, if, if, if you, if you make that kind of strategic choice and then you don't get the outcome that you want, um, then when things do loosen up a bit, you know, are people still paying the 39 bucks a month to, right. to, to do, you know, to do your classes or, you know, are they swapping their bikes out um, and, and, and going back to the gym to begin with? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. They're going to have to build a network effects, right? Like the, I think the key to making that happen is all these people who are working out at home, building those relationships like user to user to user so that they're switching costs, right? Like people, if you go back to just working out at your gym, then you're like missing out on this community and this connection because they don't build community um, to your point. Then it's the bike becomes commoditized. Um, For sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's right. And you, so you had mentioned that you, um, you, you, so I'm assuming that you career switched like before business school, uh, right. you weren't doing marketing and then you landed in marketing. So I guess first question is, uh, where did you go to business school? Just out of curiosity. So I went to business school, um, at the George Washington university school of business. That's and, what's up. and I, uh, I'll kind of walk you through high level, you know, how I got there and, and what some of the, the drivers of that was. But, uh, you know, I mentioned, I went uh, to college and majored in economics and Italian. Um, I'm from the southeastern Michigan area. Uh, sub for anybody who, who's listening that understands, um, you know, what the, as we kind of colloquially refer to as the mitten looks like. Right. Uh, my city is just north of Detroit, so it's called Southfield. Yep. Um, and I, I, I went to college at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Okay, uh, go blue. Go blue for sure. For sure. I mean, this is really weird, right? Because right now in a traditional year, um, yeah. I'd be gearing up right now for probably a noon kickoff against a cupcake opponent and right. then spending the rest of the day, you know, pounding beers. Right. Um, but uh, with that being said, you know, I, I, I graduated back in, in 2004. Um, you know, to be honest, 
just like most people that I knew at the time, um, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm going to do after college. Um, you know, it's not like when you're say going to school and you, you know, want to go into accounting or say psychology or, you know, something like that, there's like a more defined uh, path that you might take. So I said, you know, I'll just double down and go to more school. How's law school, you know? And so, uh, at 22, you know, I picked up everything, took my talents to Pittsburgh, uh, and I went to <laughs> I went to law school. That did you, did, you, did you have a press conference? I had a press conference. I, you know, I missed out on the boy and girls club, yeah. you know, kind of network effect. I think that that could have definitely helped, you know, my market share and Instagram following. Right, right. Uh, I love LeBron for that. Anyway, people roast him for it. I'm glad he did it. But keep <laughs> keep keep going. So you 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 had to. Yeah, press- yeah. We can we. We can definitely get into LeBron later on. I, I think LeBron, LeBron is just like anything else that's beautiful about America. You know, there's things that you love, there's things you can do without, and then there's things that make you cringe. But it's just all part of the iterative process. Right, right, right. I dig it. Uh, yeah, but so I, yeah, I moved, you went down moved, to Pittsburgh. Yeah, moved to Pittsburgh, and um, you know, at 22, you know, again, for those who who may not necessarily be you know familiar with a lot of people who go to law school. The, the, the lion's share of people that enter into law school just came out of college, right? So you're sitting in, you know, a classroom of people who, you know, three months ago, they were college seniors. And now everybody is trying to get professionally groomed and trained right. um, to be to be an attorney. And, and I'll be, you know, completely transparent here. You know, I wasn't ready for that. You know, I'd never worked before aside from, you know, the, the BS jobs I held in, in college and some internships. But in reality, I hadn't truly been an adult where I was responsible for earning my keep, paying bills, and trying to figure out where I fit in, you know, in in society. And so I I think I left a lot of money on the table in law school, because the difference was I sloppily assumed it was more school. And it really wasn't. It was professional training. It was it was really intended as an environment like, yeah, you need to actually learn the, the basic blocking and tackling of how to think like an attorney, but really the true value of unlocking that educational opportunity is mixing and mingling with your classmates, um, meeting attorneys in the area in which you go to school, figuring out what firm or organization you want to try to be a part of and really aggressively going after that. And these were all things, unfortunately, at you know, 21, 22, that were kind of lost on me. So, you know, I, to kind of just keep the old, you know, MBA metaphor going. I was ended up, I ended up being, you know, professionally kind of like a, a 10 day contract journeyman, you know? So right. I was like, I was good enough to make the team right. and impress a few people, but I didn't necessarily, you know, get signed into long-term deals. So right. I, I, I started off as, as what's known as being a litigator, probably seven out of 10 attorneys are litigators. You know, it's, it's not as sexy as what you see on TV. Right with people going into, you know, a law and order type of courtroom and, you know, with all the drama, but that's literally what I did. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, after three and a half years of Pittsburgh, no disrespect to anybody who tunes in from, you know, Southwest PA, but, you know, th- that just wasn't what I was looking for, you mm-hmm. know, when I was in my early twenties, you know, a lot of my friends, um, they moved to New York. Uh, a lot of people I've met in law school, they were down in DC and, you know, Pittsburgh just was a, a bit small for my taste. You know, I was 24 coming out of school and I wanted to have a good time. Right. And so I did what I think a lot of, you know, young black professionals do, which is I moved to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> moved to the A. Yeah, it's popping for us down there. 
Yeah, I, Atlanta is a, I, the the easiest way to say it is it's really it's just, it's an interesting place. I mean, it is it is probably one of the most atypical cities in the country for young black professionals. And, you know, it checked all my boxes, um, you know, coming out of law school. So I, mo I moved down to Atlanta in 2007, uh, became a member of the Georgia bar and, and started working. And um, again, it, it was, it was what I was looking for because it definitely had a quicker pace of life despite being in the South. You know, it was a dense urban environment, which I loved. Uh, and I think the thing that's, the reason why I say it's very atypical is that for anybody who hasn't really spent a lot of time in Atlanta, I think that the one thing when you go around the city that would just immediately jump out at you is there's so many black people that seem to be doing well down there. Right. right? You just, it just, it just, they're everywhere. And that was something that was a little bit more familiar to me coming from, you know, Michigan, because Michigan traditionally has a very strong, and prosperous black middle class. Yep. The difference is that everybody here, you know, and that's not an oversimplification, literally everybody here, they have ties to the auto industry. Yeah. So that prosperity and success was built on the back of blue collar manufacturing labor. And there's nothing, that's not me trying to say one is better than the other. It's just that what you see in Atlanta is the white collar professionals. You see a whole bunch of brothers and sisters in suits and ties mm -hmm. and dresses you know, making power moves. And that's just a very different thing if you've never been there before. Right. Yeah. It's a, I, so I've been to Atlanta and I've been there to visit a few times. I still, I'm there, I haven't figured Atlanta out. Right. And I, okay. I, and I don't think that it's a place that I can figure out unless I live there, breathe it, touch it. Like you need, you need to spend, at least for me, I would need to spend some time there. So the, the first time I went there, was when I was in business school. So I actually went there twice during my two years of business school. Once was for National Black MBA. And so you're there in the convention hall all day. Then we're going to these different parties around town. Uh, right. And then I went back when, so when, when Michigan made it, when we got robbed in, of the national championship in 2013, <laughs> it's right. still not a foul. That was a clean block when Trey Burke, Pence, old boy, shot to the backboard. But that's neither here nor there. You know, we were getting ready to graduate, and we drove down from Ann Arbor to Atlanta for the Final Four. Oh, wow. And okay. uh, spent the weekend down there. It was great. We stopped on Syracuse and then, you know, got cheated, you know, in the national championship against Louisville. But while we were down there, we got there on Friday, and we didn't leave until Tuesday morning. You know, we spent a lot of time just out and about in Atlanta. And it was um, – it, it wasn't a negative experience. It was just confusing. Like, it didn't – it didn't fit into, like, you had all these well-to-do black folks, but then they still right. all stayed on their own part of town. You know, there wasn't a lot of uh, interaction. I want to say, where's, there's, um, what's the, like, more yuppie professional tends to be white? Is it is that Buckhead? Yeah, so there's Buckhead and Bankhead. And you, yeah. the, the, the divide between those is, 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 is not slight. It's, one is literally the well-to-do more ritzy business center of town and the other one is literally unadulterated the hood right so i was we were in buckhead because we was a bunch mm -hmm. of michigan nbas went down there and so me and my boys we all you know crashed at this at this one condo but then the other nbas it was a, you know it's in midtown it's a nice little part of atlanta um but then the official like meetup was in buckhead where all the bars are and right. being there, it was just a very, very interesting thing. Cause like I, 
I, I kind of just walk and move like I belong wherever I'm at. And uh, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of black folks there, even though it was Final Four weekend. And it, it just it just all just seemed just kind of like I couldn't figure the space out. There was nothing that was hostile that came in my direction. Sure. But it just didn't, it didn't necessarily feel, you know, like it was, it didn't feel comfortable either, if, if that makes sense. No, you know what? And, and, and here's the thing about it. I'll start it off by saying this. So it, it, black folks in Detroit have been doing well for a long time uh, because, again, I mentioned, you know, the rise of the auto industry. Mm-hmm. So even if I look at like my, my father, my father who came up uh, from Tunica, Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, the early 60s and moved up here, uh, people like him and his generation were able to kind of build uh, you know, the kind of prototypical American dream of having a steady job and building out a family and all that other stuff. And they were able to do it in, in a way uh, where it wasn't an abrupt generational um, changeover. But the kind of dirty secret about places like, you know, Detroit and Chicago is they are notoriously, notoriously segregated places. I would right. even go so far as to say that Detroit might be the most segregated and racist city I've ever even been to, let wow. alone lived in. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and the reason why I would say that is because, I mean, there was a time, there was a point in time where Detroit was the fourth largest city, you mm-hmm. know, in the country. If you, if you think about it right now, there's probably no more than maybe 10 or 15 cities within their city proper that have over a million people. 60 years ago in Detroit, I mean, Detroit had over two and a quarter million people. Yeah. So it was a huge, dense place. Now what happened was, there were race riots in the late 60s, right? They, they made a movie about this maybe about four years ago that was kind of controversial, I think, because some people didn't appreciate um, the way in which some of the Black folks were portrayed in that movie. But be that as it may, after those race riots, a lot of um, the white factory workers, they moved out of the city. They didn't leave Michigan, but yeah. they left Detroit. Right Now, I'm setting all this up to go back to the way that Atlanta is similar but still different. So that's how Detroit is. So when you, if you come to Detroit now, it is not an overestimation that literally um, around 82, 83% of the population of the city itself is black. So most places you go to, you will only see black people in Detroit. Right. Okay. And Detroit's a huge place. Now, conversely, going back to Atlanta, Atlanta in the metro area is a very large place, but the city itself is not that big. The city is no more than probably about 500,000 people. But some of those cultural, um, and I wouldn't even call them class, but I would call them more, you know, cultural and in turn racial divides, um, despite the city not being quite as large, they still exist. Yeah. And so when you go to, to a Buckhead, right, that's where all the businesses are. That's where all the white collar professionals are. What happened is that there used to be a lot of clubs there. And then... You know what happens at the club when too much Hennessy right, right, right. and, you know, greenery gets involved. People start acting out right. and all the white folks said, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to mess up our, uh, you're not going to mess up our nice area of town. And they moved all the clubs out. So now what you see is a more, I mean, it's not an artful term, but you see a more whitewashed version of Buckhead right. where they've tried to create almost a Rodeo Drive. So, you you know, you go down the street and you see the chop house and then there's, yeah. you know, a a Four Seasons, and then there's a Tom Ford and a Gucci store, and you're like, oh, this is for me. 
Right. Um, but if you want to find something that's more calibrated for us, it's in it's in other parts of town. Yeah, and I but, that's the, oh go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. But just to finish up, with all that being said, I think for me, the point that I was trying to ultimately get around to is that you said you know you didn't encounter anything hostile, but you didn't necessarily feel um, included per se. For me, when I first came down there, one thing I, I love about Atlanta, and I, I, I absolutely as a northerner think stood out to me was just how friendly people were. Yeah. And it sounds so stereotypical, you know, the kind of Southern hospitality. Right. But no, like I live in my building now and it is not that large of a building. And there are neighbors that I know their face, but they don't know my name and I don't know theirs. Right. When I get on the elevator, folks don't speak to each other. It's just how it is. You know, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the rude one. But yeah. I'm just telling you in the South, it is not like you can be at yeah. the the grocery store down there is pub called Publix, right? Yep. You can be at Publix and the person ringing up your groceries will just literally say, oh, you know, good morning, good afternoon. How are you doing today? How's your day been? Right. And you just end up having this very, you know, collegial conversation with somebody and it just takes down any defenses you might have. And yeah. part and parcel of making friendships and connections there with people is that hospitality. And I found when I got there, you know, I, I went from literally, I, I did not know anybody in Atlanta when I moved there. I should have said that from the outset. I literally got in my car and, you know, the funny story is I actually accidentally moved to the hood, um, <laughs> which, which was interesting, right? Because there's this guy who just graduated from law school and he drives an Audi and, oh, by the way, now he's living, you know, next door to me. And how did this happen? And right, literally right. the way it happened was I went into Publix and I got a, you know, this is, for anybody who's a younger listener, this probably just jumps off the page of you as like, this sounds like super caveman-ish, but you know, it may come as a shocker. The internet wasn't once as robust as it is right. now. You know, if you wanted to find an apartment, you found an apartment one of two ways. Somebody either told you, oh, hey, yo, this is a good place to check out, blah, blah, blah. Or for me, I'd always just gone to the grocery store and got the apartment book, yep. just thumbed through that and found a place. Right. So, you know, I, again, I graduated from school and didn't know what I was going to do per se. And I didn't have a whole bunch of money. So I go down there and I'm like, I'm looking through this apartment guy. And I'm like, man, this shit is really cheap. Five fifty a month. Okay. Right. Well, guess right. what? You pay five fifty a month to live. You're going to reap what you sow. Right. Right. And right. so <laughs> that, that's just an aside, but yes, I ended up moving to the hood, but the, the point overall is, is that, um, you know, I made a lot of friends down there very easily, and, and I found people very accommodating and hospitable. That, that's what's up. And I think a, a part of, you know, me not really understanding Atlanta was not really understanding the geography, too, right? Because it's so massive. And so we're just hopping in these cars from the metro Atlanta area, and we're rolling, and then we hop out, and then we're just at this particular scene. And I just couldn't get my brain around, like, where is it that people, like, live and congregate and what's the vibe of this neighborhood like i understand oakland right like i'm mm -hmm. like east oakland is residential and it's massive and it's hood and then there's like the center part of oakland and it's like lake Merritt, and there's like apartments and you got young professionals and businesses it's kind of like a mix then you got like the downtown area you got west oakland that all makes sense to me la makes sense to me i was able to get my brain around chicago but i, I don't i don't think i ever really got my brain around atlantic because i didn't understand the map well i did enjoy while we were down for the final four, um, the do-over, they had a party that Sunday. So there mm -hmm. was like Saturday we played Syracuse, stomped them, out, stomped them out. So that was a great night. 
And then Sunday, we just had like free time. And it right. and the, the do over, um, I don't know if Adidas sponsors it or if Adidas puts it on, but they had a big party on Sunday. And I don't know exactly where it was in Atlanta. It clearly was a black part of town. It was hella black people. That was really dope. And then Monday, we had the Final Four again, which was or the, the championship back downtown. And that had its own weird funkiness that kind of came with it. We had this whole interaction um, that, you know, wasn't necessarily the most positive interaction while we were hanging out at a bar. But net, you know, Atlanta was just, was just a place that I never really got to figure out. And I'm sure people from Atlanta because, like, yo, you came in, you know, as a as an outsider and you weren't, I wasn't being hosted by people from Atlanta. So I wasn't being necessarily taken to the Atlanta places that, you know, you'd want to right. uh, go to, but regardless, you know, it is a really dope city for black professionals. I know a lot of people are making that move down there now. Like there was like a second wave that's really being driven by like, you know, music and entertainment with like, uh, I mean, the music industry has been booming down there for a while with like Usher and Outkast and all of what they did, but it's like really, um, it's really a scene down there right now. And then Tyler Perry building his studio down there, and like all the attention that's been brought down there, plus Georgia passing laws to kind of attract more uh, folks down there to record uh, in their, or film their shows and their and their and their films. So you know, Atlanta is back going through this whole like resurgence um, that. You know, I got to get down there and, and figure that place out and uh, experience it. Yeah, yeah. No, in Atlanta, the thing, the, the thing, I, and you, you, you kind of just keyed on this, but I think Atlanta has been a primary driver of, uh, you know, popular black culture since at least the early to mid '90s because of the music scene, and they've really embraced um, the artists down there. So not even just the recording artists, but they've also, you know, embraced people making, you know, physical, tangible art, be it film. Um, sculptures and the like it is really a place that um, from a black person's perspective you look at it and you say okay like if I'm trying to understand and appreciate what's hot musically from a style address standpoint um, you know that's one of the places that I'm going to focus my attention on trying to you know emulate because that that's where they've been doing it um, and one thing that I think was really cool you know again being a young professional down there the one thing about the music that's so different um, versus going to other places because, you know, you just kind of, you think about, okay, let's say you're traveling for work and it's, you know, Friday, you just got off, you're going to link up with your people and you're going to find out where you're going to go for the night, right? Now, you know, me in my late thirties, my nights are uh, immensely tame and, and, and <laughs> very uh, pedestrian, right? So, I mean, I'm going out to dinner uh, with my wife or, you know, a couple local friends. And I mean, you know, a good night, I mean, we're, we're, we're shutting it down at 10 o'clock. I mean, right. maybe, maybe we're going over somebody's house and, you know, opening a bottle of wine and, you know, talking a little bit more. But I mean, when you're younger, I mean, you're trying to really get it in. I mean, right. you're trying to find out, okay, where is it popping? Where can I go listen to some good music and turn the hell up right. and have a great time? And the night's going to end when the night's end, when the night ends. So the thing about Atlanta is because the music that the DJs, who are so locked in to the recording artists down there. I mean, you're listening to music 
way before it's hitting the syndicated airwaves, right? Right. So all the dances and the vibe of the club, it's just a completely different energy that I've never, you know, seen and, and been able to experience in other places. And I mean, I partied all over the country, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was this promotional uh, uh, group in New York called Three Kings, and they threw a lot of uh, uh, parties for young black professionals. And I mean, I've partied in LA and in Miami and, you know, uh, Chicago and so on, but, you know, never, never been the, the complete energy of Atlanta um, is what I'll say. Right. But, so let's, let's run with that though. So you're, you're in Atlanta, you're in your legal career, you are getting it in, enjoying everything that Atlanta has to offer. And then you decide to go, to business school, like what, what makes right. you, what makes you go back get your MBA? Well, a couple things, right? So, you know, I, I'll start off and I'll say that just me personally, I think I've mentioned earlier how when you go to law school, the, the, the goal is supposed to be professional, you know, development and rounding you out. The kind of catch is that law school is deeply personal. It's deeply personal in a way where you don't have to collaborate with others. Mm. You literally can sit through three years of law school and take the bar and you will only have been in your own thoughts and in your own um, kind of space. Right. Uh, I mean, extracurricularly, for sure, you can do some stuff, but I'm just talking about the actual day to day, you know, instruction and, and what you're going through. Well, so for me, you know, I, I kind of am a, an introverted extrovert, right? I'm, a, I'm on the, extroverted side of introversion right but i definitely get energy from myself and that kind of environment it just wasn't the best for me because i'll just you know i just doubled and tripled down on working you know by myself and i didn't get the most out of it and so i looked at what the career um what my career had looked like at that time early on and i said well you know what am i really satisfied am i really you know engage the way I want to be, you know, and, and, and you know, it, I didn't take any kind of overly academic approach to it. It was just kind of a holistic set of questions. Like, and I didn't, I didn't feel like I was really getting what I wanted to get. Now, the, the interesting thing is, so back in 2012, uh, my now wife, who I've been married to for just under two years, we had just met and, you know, I don't have any uh, shame in it, it, acknowledging how we met, but, you know, I was on, uh, Facebook using it in, in one of its extended uh, ways, basically <laughs> pre-jumping into what we now kind of kind of colloquially call, you know, the DMs. <laughs> Slid right in, right. Right. You know, and I and I and I and I sent her a message and I just said, hey, I mean, it was it was it was corny and it was like unoriginal. And, you know, God bless her for actually responding. But it was just something like, hey, you know, I know we're like kind of, you know, third tier connected, but, you know, I was wondering when you was going to be around over the holidays or if you were blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of how it, it started. Uh, but hey, she had just, shoot or shoot. yeah, that, they, yeah. I mean, you know, my favorite player of all time, God bless him and rest his soul, Kobe being Bryant, you know, listen, I, you make a, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right. So speak on it. So there you go. So, but uh, we met and, you know, she was deeply, deeply, um, instrumental in, in, in helping me to kind of reroute towards business school. Cause she had just finished business school. And when I told her my story, it wasn't like, she just said, Oh, you need to go to business school. She just said, well, a lot of the things you're saying are things that I was thinking 
when I decided to go. So this is something you might want to explore. And, you know, we kind of got to the process a little bit late in it. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to apply to two schools um, this year, and then we'll see where, where it takes me. And the reason why I actually ended up choosing GW was, was, was a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, DC is a, is, is a super um, transitional city. And in such, it ends up being uh, a very diverse place. It just attracts a lot of professionals from across the world and people who are going to school there. And I had a lot of friends in law school that went to GW. So I spent a lot of time there and I knew that that international appeal and, and affect was something that I was definitely yearning for. So I was like, okay, plus, you know, I liked being able to tell the story of I'm from the Midwest, you know, I moved to the South professionally, and now, you know, I'm moving kind of to the East Coast. I just felt it helped me build out a professional network. Because uh, I mean, it, it, I didn't know it at the time that I was going to end up moving back to the Midwest. Um, but if I did, I wanted to know, you know, people all over. I mean, noticeably absent is kind of the West Coast, but at the same time, it was something that I wanted to, I wanted to be able to kind of tell and went there and it was a great experience. I mean, I, I made, I met people who, you know, will literally be friends, uh, you know, probably for the rest of our lives. I did a lot of cool traveling. You know, I did a um, consulting abroad project uh, in Istanbul uh, where, we were working with a, uh, a high-end uh, fashion retailer out there called Bayman. It's kind of like a, a Saks or a Neiman Marcus. And mm -hmm. we were working trying to help them understand, um, this is, you know, six years ago, if they should get more involved in e-commerce and what that should look like from their standpoint, because uh, they were kind of bare bones at the time. You know, I, I did a, a study abroad in, in Copenhagen um, at the Copenhagen Business School on sustainability issues. Uh, and I just, it was Again, it was, it was a great two years, uh, and that all set me up to, to come back to Michigan back in 2015 and, uh, and, and start at FCA. That's what's up. So if you pull back to this broad arc, you know, you're working at Fiat now. You're helping develop and design and market and cars to help grow this really amazing brand here. And... The way in which you ended up there, you took this kind of circuitous route through law school into law that took you down to Atlanta. Um, and then eventually you realized you wanted to be a bit more collaborative and work on a bit more integrated process. And then you landed business school at GW in DC. You meet all these amazing folks, you get involved, you, you travel to Istanbul, and like this amazing like whirlwind of a journey as a, as a black man, which is then, you know, brought you back ultimately to the Detroit metro area, which is, you know, where your roots are. Let's go back now, like to your roots and like how, how you grew up. Cause I would love to understand like what your childhood and your formative years were like to paint a picture, or, like help people understand like how you became uh, this man that you are and how you built this life. So growing up uh, in the Detroit area, like what was your childhood like for you? So as, as, as a little bit of background, so my, my parents, uh, my father who's alive, my mother is, is deceased. They met uh, in the early, or I should say mid-60s. And I mentioned my dad, you know, he's from uh, Tunica in Mississippi, which, I mean, until 15 or 20 years ago, I mean, it was really, it was pretty much marshland. I mean, it's in the Delta of Mississippi, which is uh, just completely destitute and poor area 
um, in the state. And now, you know, they're kind of claiming the fame is that they have casinos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was one of, I want to say, nine uh, brothers and sisters. He, his mother, so my grandmother on his side, uh, she passed when he was very young. And my dad, my dad's dad was kind of a rolling stone. I mean, this man literally, I mean, we're talking like Will Chamberlain, Ray mm-hmm. Charles levels of, <laughs> you know, uh, enjoying yourself, so to speak. Right? Right, right, right. And so uh, with all that being said, he was raised by his brothers, right? And so he moved up to the north and he ended up settling in Flint, Michigan, which is also a big or was a big manufacturing um, hub at the time and working for GM. Now, um, was, was he, he met- a part of like hopping on? Because I'd heard before, this is when I was in the Detroit area or I was in uh, Michigan, I was in uh, Ann Arbor, that, mm-hmm. that the automobile industry, like they would send buses down to the South and in, in particular states like Mississippi and just say, hey, we're hiring. If you want a job, be here tomorrow morning to get on this bus. Like, was your dad a part of that, or he just chose to move up north to to Flint? I think indirectly, he he probably was. I mean, my understanding of what happened was, so when he left Mississippi, he took a stop in uh, St. Louis, because that's where one of his older brothers was. Gotcha. And then the his eldest brother, who was kind of in, you know, in part kind of like a father figure, he was the first to move up to Flint, work for GM, and I think he kind of sent word, oh, Got by it. the way, you know, this is a good job. Um, you know, it's, it's steady, blah, blah, blah. And then that's what kind of prompted my dad to come up. Got it. And so my dad starts working at GM in the mid sixties. And then he met my mother. So my mother who was born in Michigan, um, was Chinese or predominantly Chinese. And her father owned a Chinese restaurant in downtown Flint. And I guess my dad used to go in there and, you know, I don't want to overly romanticize it. I don't know what the courting looked like, but I mean, that's how they met. Right. 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 And so this is in the, you know, uh, late sixties now. So they get married and I have an older brother. So they had my brother in 1968. Okay. And they leave, they live in Flint for a couple more years. My dad ends up meeting a guy, uh, who he, who was like a supervisor more on the white collar side of stuff. Cause my dad worked in like the paint shop earlier on and you know they ended up becoming friends outside of work this guy got a job at volkswagen in uh pennsylvania and so my dad mom and brother moved to pennsylvania uh the 70s go by and then somehow some way in 1981 i come out now i don't know what happened in that you know 12 and a half to 13 year window where they said well you know what it's a good idea to have another kid uh right but you know, that's kind of how I came into the world. So then uh, the same guy that kind of was instrumental in my dad moving to Pennsylvania, he took a job at Chrysler in, in uh, Rochester Hills. And then that's how my dad ended up uh, uh, working at Chrysler and moving back to Michigan in 81 after I was born. So where we lived is another suburb of Detroit called Rochester Hills. And to be honest with you, I mean, I'm, I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't think there were any other people that I came into contact with that were, you know, kind of a minority catch-all until I was probably seven or eight years old. Wow. Because, and, and, and race, you know, race 
race is always kind of an evolving standard of you know what we call things how we think of things and so on and so forth right but quite simply i don't necessarily think i knew i was black until i was about five or six Mm. um because you know i wasn't like going at home and you know looking at my dad and just like asking myself all these kind of like existential questions at five like who am i and why does my dad look different than my mom and like i know but you know what's funny is my first experience with race was actually a public one um, I was over a friend of mine's house and his name was Chris Evans and we were getting ready to go swimming. And I remember, you know, like we put on our little bathing suits or whatever. And then like little kids were just like looking at each other and stuff. And we were trying to figure out, <laughs> it, you know, it was kind of like an Adam and Eve experience. I was like, we were trying to figure out why we, why our skin looked different. Right. And I remember we went to his mom and we like asked his mom, we were like, we were like, you know, Miss Evans, like, or I was like, Miss Evans, like, how come like, my skin like is darker than Chris's. Right. And it, it, this, this seems like it was be something like out of PBS, but I can't, you know, um, um, undersell it. Cause I think it was very helpful for me as a young person. She was like, well, you know, it's because Ryan, like you're black and Chris is white, but that's not a reason why you guys shouldn't be friends and you shouldn't treat people differently because they look differently. And that was literally my first experience with race. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, my mother, you know, she ended up being sick and subsequently passing away from leukemia in, in the late 80s. Sorry okay? to hear that. No, that's okay. It's okay. Um, after that, my dad, a couple years later, remarried. And he, he remarried a black woman, and we moved uh, closer uh, to Detroit, to Southfield, where I grew up, uh, you know, after, the, after my mother passed. So I went from an environment where it was – Everyone was white, and I was the only non-white person, but I had the only experience I really had with race was a positive one. Right. And so then I moved to Southfield, which is closer to the city. It's still, it's a suburb, just like Rochester Hills was, but the composition was very different. It's a predominantly black suburb. Um, It's a predominantly minority suburb end to end. I mean, there's probably 65, 70,000 people that are in Southfield and Aside from black folks, the other predominant minority is uh, what are known as Chaldeans. So Chaldeans are Arabs who are Christian. And oh. a, lot of, a lot of Arabs, well, in, in general, Southeast Michigan, there's a city called Dearborn. Dearborn is a huge Arab American population, you know, tons of Lebanese people and people from, you know, other countries in the Middle East. But in the early 90s, during the first Gulf War, a lot of people kind of came over as a second wave. Mm. Um, so I'm in you know, second grade and we're getting people all the time straight from Kuwait and Iraq because they've been displaced because of the war. Right. They don't speak a lick of English, you know? Right. That and so I kind of- interesting experience growing up. Oh yeah, it, it, it was a super interesting experience to like, you know, be eight years old, sitting next to somebody who doesn't speak English. And then, you know, 10 years later you're in high school and like, you know, it, that seemed like such a distant past, but- Right. I, I grew up in a very, uh, I, it was a very diverse suburb. But the interesting thing was my my actual upbringing. Even though you spend most of your day at school, my actual upbringing was like the blackest, like just blackest, only black experience <laughs> that you could ever, ever, ever have. Right. So like my my stepmother, uh, who owned her own hair salon. 
you know, you go in there and it's the, you know, female equivalent of what goes on at the barbershop, right? right so, right, right. you know, all the black women are going in there getting their hair done. And, you know, Detroit is a very, it's kind of like a big town where everybody ends up knowing each other. Right. So, you know, for example, my best friend, uh, Trey, you know, his wife, she used to get her hair done by my, my stepmom, you know, when she was a little girl. So it's just like all these little overlapping you know, relationships that you end up breeding with people over the years, right? But, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, in my stepmom's salon growing up. And then we went to a Black Baptist church. Um, so, I mean, I was almost only around Black people. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, I don't stereotypically look like a Black person. Like, I, I can remember remember being there was this one time back in uh, 2008 when I, when, I, when I just moved to Atlanta and I went to uh, an Obama kind of like fundraiser where they're trying to get, you know, young people activated. And I met this woman uh, who was married, you know, me, me and her hit it off. And she was like, man, you know, you're, really, you're a really cool guy. Like, I think you would enjoy meeting my friend. And so she tried to set us up, right? And uh, I described myself to the friend via text uh, but I didn't talk about anything descriptive. I was like, hey, you know, I'm about 6'3", you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we went and met up. And then I, I saw who this woman's friend was. And she was like looking around for somebody. And then I come over and you, you could tell that she didn't, the person that she was now meeting wasn't who she expected to meet. Right. And exactly. she was like, I remember she said to me, she's like, Ryan, she's like, you do not look like a black man. Like she was like so shocked. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. But the, the, the interesting thing is, right, so black, black people, black men especially, I think one of the, the, the ways in which we talk to each other, um, the, the kind of slang that you use and the ease with which you bring it out is very indicative of who you were raised around and, like, what kind of guy you are. You know? <laughs> exactly. You know, so for me, you know, I learned a lot of my shit talking by growing up playing sports, because in reality, I had two things to overcome uh, growing up, right? Everybody was like, oh, you're a pretty boy. So they assume you're soft exactly. and that you can't play, right? And I think the thing that kind of saved me was just being on the taller side. So I didn't get bullied quite as much. Right. Uh, but then the other thing, again, you know, my mother, I said that my mother is Chinese. Well, you know, look, before the 23andMe's of the world, and, you know, ancestry, everybody kind of just generically said, oh, you know, your mom's this and your dad's that. Well, you're half and half. Well, now we understand that, like, there's a lot more that goes into the mix. Right, right? So right, right. aside from being, you know, I did 23andMe, and I knew some of this before, but what it really fleshed out for me was that, you know, my great-grandmother, uh, she was Polish, and she, like, Polish from Poland. So huh. she, I actually have a copy of her naturalization papers when she came over here, you know, during World War One, because uh, the Germans were acting up. And so uh, I'm a lot of different stuff. So I, huh. I look really different in relation to the average black person. And I also intend to be, in quotations, lighter skin. Right. right? So now I'm overcoming being, and I'm, I'm saying this in jest, overcoming right. Right. being light skinned. And, you know, a pretty boy, so to speak, you know, right, so like right. I would be on the court, man, and people will follow the shit out of me a lot of times <laughs> right? because they didn't think I would do anything. Right. Right. And there's, there's, now, there's like Steph Curry hadn't come along either. Right. Because, I mean, I think Steph is really uh, K 
came and put on and, and did a lot to dispel. Because I think it's a lot of what he had to deal with is keeping it a buck. Like him being smaller, but also right. him being smaller, him being light-skinned. Led to like, oh, he's soft, he can't hack, he can't, he can't handle it. And so he was like, I'm going to go out here, I'm going to bust these fools up every single time, which is, end of the day, I think what you, what you have to do, you know, especially coming up, playing pickup basketball, you know, in, in, in our neighborhoods, like, you can't, you can't be soft. And so what, what would you do when people would file, file, the, file the crap out of you? Well, here's the thing about it. So I am, my father and I, it's, it's funny because, like, my wife and her family, they're a lot more, civil than like my dad and I like, like, we, like we like yell at each other like like yeah. full like not like suggestive stuff like hey dad it'd be really great like no like you you know uh, yeah. cursing at each other yeah, right. so that was the background I that's how I knew how to express myself I expressed myself like my dad expressed himself and at the end of the day because I saw my dad acting like that towards other people when stuff like that happened to me that's how I responded right, right? And as a result, when people started to see that, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can't, right. we can't just mess with him like that. Like, he's not, you know, like, I didn't have an enforcer friend that would come along and just be like, oh, no, you can't pick on Ryan. You can't do right, this. Right, right. I ended up having to stick up for my, I ended up being kind of the enforcer right. friend. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I, Which was an I, interesting I, dynamic. No, I get it. I <laughs> Trust me, I get it. I think my, I, I'm, I've always been pretty much the same person. So I'm, a, I'm an empath. I uh, I don't like to start any mess, you know. Like I'm just not someone who creates problems. Um, I like to get along with folks. I, I tend to be able to find a middle ground with just about anybody. But right, you you put me you put me on a basketball court, and now I, I avoid them like the plague, you know, because I'm I'm not trying to blow it blow an Achilles. But back in the day when I used to really hoop, you put me on a basketball court, and I I'm just conditioned to give not an inch to anyone for anything right like oh you, absolutely you, you talk mess you try and find me a little too hard i'm not gonna ask some, someone else to come be the enforcer i'm gonna be the enforcer like it's gonna it's gonna be you you got you got a problem on your hands and it and the, that still comes out uh in my life now when i'm not playing hoops if anyone just comes for me because oh for you start sure. talking about the way which you were socialized like i'm the type of person if you don't come for me i will move this world in peace every single day. Like, I just don't go out <laughs> and start anything. But the second you right. come for me, I promise you, in any context, or whether we're in a corporate environment or whether we're at the grocery store, if you come for me, you do not have the intensity and the stamina to deal with what I'm about to bring back. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, man, I hear you. Yeah, you I, I, I... Yeah, and I and I think you know it's funny because, so, my 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 kind of blackness, if you will, I think is, just, it's just like anybody else's. It's very very circumstantial. It's a byproduct of, you know, who you were raised by, where you were raised, and everything like that. Now the interesting thing is, you know, I'm I'm getting ready to, my wife and I are getting ready to to sell our place and to move, and uh, you know I'm looking back through. I'm one of those people where. For two things, you know, I, I will say I could always be more civically engaged, but one thing I at least try to be civic around is if I'm not using something, I'll donate it to Goodwill or donate it to the Red Cross, just because I'm just like, somebody could benefit from this if this is just sitting in my closet, you know, right. collecting dust. And, I'm, you know, I, of course, I'm thumbing through old pictures. And I'm telling you this right now, as somebody who grew up in the suburbs, let me tell you, 
it is notorious. If you if you meet people from this area and you ask them about like dudes from Southfield, it's almost kind of like the stereotypes that exist with like black fraternities and sororities, right? Where like, you know, the alphas are supposed to be, you know, the kind of thoughtful intellectual type, right. the cues are the dogs, the kappas are, uh, you know, like the pretty boys, like that's how the suburbs of Detroit are. And one thing I think that's like notoriously uh, 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 the case with people from Southfield is I think people from Southfield tried to dramatically oversell how street they were when in fact they were not street at all. Huh. Like they were trying so to if you go back and look at pictures, yeah, if you go back and look at pictures of me when I'm in, in high school, it looks like somebody who's who just left the booth and is going <laughs> back to the block. Right. And, you know, it just it, it, it led to some uh, regretful, in retrospect, fashion choices <laughs> and, and, and some lifestyle changes that I needed to make. Yeah. Uh, hey, well, you know, you just it's just a it's just a product of, of your environment. There's there's this one picture that's uh, somewhat famous amongst uh, my circle of friends. Um, and it resurfaced because I ended up losing, you know, most of, you know, my my the ones that I own, like my old childhood photos and high school photos or whatever but uh an old friend of mine when i got accepted to michigan for b school he sent me this pic he was like yo remember where you come from like a kind of mm-hmm. little tongue-in-cheek thing but there's a, mm-hmm. there's a pic of the, the there's a picture of the two of us the day after prom so we're at disneyland and i just start cracking up I was like yo i used to go out in public like this like but it, <laughs> but it was like la fashion right so it's like yeah i i had on a wife beater and some lokes but oh you wow, know, you know, I, I, this is mid '90s in Los Angeles, and yeah. that's how I dressed everywhere I went. And so we were, we were at Disneyland. It was a little warm. I, re- I do remember that I had an over T-shirt on, so I took that off, and I had my wife right. wife beater that I was wearing underneath. And right, I was out in public that way, thinking there was nothing wrong with it. And so that that picture is somewhat funny and uh, kind of ironic. You look back, it's like. Yeah. It's something I would never get caught dead doing, like walking around in public in a, in a wife beater. But here I was oh, yeah. at Disneyland posing for pictures, dressed that way. So, well, well, what's interesting is that, you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, fashion kind of choices based on the city you live in. So in, in Detroit, it's well known that um, Cartier glasses, or as people <laughs> here would call them, like Cartiers, or just simply buffs, because uh. for the uninitiated, uh, Cartier makes a very oh first of all all Cartier stuff is expensive expensive but the Cartier buffalo glasses have actual buffalo horn on the actual stems of them. Uh, I mean these glasses you know they retail for you know twenty five hundred three grand and so but that's just a Detroit thing where people will try to get yays or buffs and put real crazy color tin in them. So my high school graduation picture they weren't Cartiers I can't remember what they were but I had like this deep pink, uh, pink or like orangish tint in them. I had, you know, earrings in both ears. Right. I'm just like, I'm like, where were my parents? And why did they let me come out the house looking, you know, a hot mess like this, right? But it was a style. That's, right. Yeah, that's how people dress. Right. Um, you know, and I, and I carried that over into uh, college and then in turn, you know, young uh uh, adulthood, and I think the thing you know, you know, we've been talking about music and and and, this, and and you know where how that sound comes from different cities and the influence it can have on people. I think as a black man, the the music you listen to, I, I don't, you know, 
I don't know if this is true for everybody. I can only speak to my own personal experience, but I just know that if, you know, look, we all went to, we've been, we both went to business school here. If I, if I run a regression analysis between the music I'm listening to and how I'm dressing and acting, there's going to be a strong correlation. The more Jeezy I listen to, the right. more, you know, stuff like that I'm listening to, it's going to affect me. So it spills right. over into where I'm hanging out, who I'm hanging out with, who I'm interested in, who in turn is interested in me. I right. mean, you know, as different as I looked, you know, I never, I never dated a non-Black woman until I was probably in my mid to late 20s. Mm. I just, here's the thing that's, here's the thing about it. I think a lot of what anchors my identity and, 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 and in turn how I see myself in relation to the outside world is that a lot of, for, for, here's the thing, it, it is not an overstatement to say that when you're black, somebody in your family, for example, is from the hood and still lives there. Right. Somebody is in prison <laughs> or is still there, right? Right, right, right. All these things are just, they're just truisms that sound like, you know, a rap sheet, but it just ends up being the case. And so for me, you know, a lot of my family, I would say on my dad's side, all my family really was from the hood. And so I spent a lot of time, holidays, summer vacation, hanging out in the hood. I didn't know it was the hood until I was older. And I was like, oh yeah, y'all were like for real poor. Right. Like, but, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because when you're, when you're young and you're just hanging out with your family, I mean, we would do stuff like, you know, take the milk crate, uh, cut off the bottom of it. And then that's a basketball hoop. And you right. just go hang that to wherever you, you know, you're at. And now you got time for a game right. or, you know, my uncle, my dad's brother would give us each, you know, a dollar or two. We go down the street, you know, we go buy some quarter water and, you know, uh, candy. And, you know, that was our dinner. You know, like and you do stuff like this and it helps you see people, black people, you know, where you're not subdividing people and making, oh, well, this person grew up in this neighborhood. Right. And, you know, went to this school and their parents do this kind of thing. You know, I'm I'm very anti elitist. You know, and I'm not yeah. trying to go on a diatribe against people who who want to, in quotation, have the finer things and have a better life. I like nice shit, too. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's deeply troubling. And I try to be as accommodating as possible to not mentally and in turn in practice build up those kind of things. And a lot of the reason why I think the, the my life has looked how it is and I made the kind of friendship circles I have is because I had those very formative open-ended experiences right. but as far as dating was concerned to go back no i mean everybody i was interested in for example the first girl i ever had a crush on was a girl named stephanie larsosa and she went to church with me and stephanie right. was the younger sister of my friend harold black girl black guy when i got older uh you know in high school the girl that i, I dated black girl when i got to college first girlfriend black second girlfriend black and so on it wasn't until i became an attorney and most people that I was working with were not black. And then I started going out and, you know, you go to the bars with them and so on. And I would realize, oh, like more than just black women are checking for me. Right. 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 You know? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, like who who one spends their time around. You know, or if you pull back and you just go level up, there is this sickness that's called white supremacy. And. Mm -hmm. With white supremacy, they created this gradation where the closer to white you are, the more attractive you are, with white being the ultimate definition of 
superiority, whether it's intellect, physical, moral, or beauty. And the darker you are, the worse off you are. When, sure. And the reality is, I think there are beautiful, amazing people of all skin tones. Like, it, I've always thought that that was illogical to me. I can see if someone says, like, all right, I'm, I'm only going to date within my culture because of whatever, like, cultural reasons. Awesome. That's not something that I'm against or that I think is crazy. But for someone to pretend, like, if you don't fall within this particularly narrow spectrum of skin color, mm-hmm. you are not attractive is dumb. You know? Oh yeah! Not not, not only is it not not only is it is it, is it dumb? It's just also unrepresentative of the world as a whole. I mean, but here's the thing, man. Look, in this country, listen. I love being an American. I I, I would never uh, reject my Americanness. I mean, I, I know in this time now with you know the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement um, as a response to uh, systemic injustice and murder that take place, unfortunately, a lot of times at the hands of police, I think that the way in which we think about blackness and color, especially, you know, in the, in the, in the early parts of the 21st century, um, these are all things that are, that are super uh, important to start the conversation around and, and to try to be able to understand each other better. But unfortunately, I think as big and beautiful and great as this country is, we can also be exceptionally insular. I mean, I'll tell you this right now. I, I mentioned how I, I majored in a language in college, right? Well, well, growing up, I didn't understand that people over the world just didn't speak English. I, I thought that everybody implicitly understood English. Right. Like if I call something a table, no matter what language you're speaking, I thought that in your head, what you heard was table. Right, 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 right. Right? right? And I'm bringing that up as a, as a corollary to say, from a, from an attractiveness standpoint, you know, if you start to make those kinds of conclusions, you know, albeit them being very, you know, preliminary on the surface, who's to say that you won't do the same thing with other things like attractiveness, who's attracted to you, who you're attracted to. I mean, and it's so, it's so, like, I look at, for example, my wife's, uh, we were talking about this the other night over dinner. I look at my wife's uh, sister and, you know, she, um, they're they're both from the same parents and uh, my wife's sister's married to a white guy named Fred, really cool guy. Uh, Fred is from Detroit. He's from not from the Detroit area. He is from the Detroit D. proper. Right? He is from right. the D. Right. Right. And what was interesting was, you know, we were having a conversation about interracial dating and whatever. And, you know, my wife said, well, you know, Fred's friendship group, you know, they, they really, a lot of them um, have dated black women. And I'm like, but, but think about it like this, right? Fred, despite being a white guy, he grew up in Detroit. Right. So he, who do you think the people were that he was attracted to growing up? Who do you think the people were he, he thought was cool? Who do you think the people were that he was hanging out with? It is, it would actually be strange if he ended up marrying a white girl, considering the fact that he grew up around all black people and right. his friends were just like that. Right. right? I think, I but, think that's but, the human but, condition. Yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's, you're good, man. But, but, but most of us aren't like that, unfortunately. Right. You know, I'm, I'm raised in the Midwest. Maybe I settle in the Midwest and it could be because I just prefer, you know, seven and a half to eight months of shitty weather throughout the course of the year, <laughs> a lack of sunshine and 50 shades of gray in the sky, right. uh, horrendous roads that destroy your car. I mean, that, that could be what really floats my boat. But unfortunately, um, 
you know, to go back to what, you know, when we were talking about earlier about schooling and, you know, where I went to school, where I moved, you know, the most, the, the best experiences I have had in life have been ones where for one reason or another, I, and in turn, the people I came into contact with were able to shrug off the conditioning that we were either born into or grew up in and just try to embrace each other for people and who we are. And that, and I couldn't be a more zealous proponent of the kind of catch-all I would call diversity and, 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 and globalization. I try my, my damnedest to make sure that the people that I'm coming into contact with represent a, a wide swath of, of the human condition and don't just fall squarely into one little comfortable and nice, neat pile. Yeah, I mean, it, it, makes, it makes the world just so much more of a big, rich, expansive space. I think if you, one of my favorite comedians is uh, Bill Burr. Uh, mm-hmm. a super funny, very woke white dude who's like originally from, I think he's from like the Boston area. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he made this really funny joke in, in one of his specials. It was like, you need to have friends from every ethnic group, you know, because if you don't, like, you're missing out on a little bit of something. Like, not every ethnic group doesn't have, like, all the information. And he he made the joke around, like, lotion, right? You know, it was like, <laughs> how, how white people could benefit from having black friends. More lotion? Yeah, well, because he he, he, was, he dated, he dated, a, he was dated, he ended up marrying a black woman, and, and they're, they're married now, and they have a kid. But this time we're back when okay. he, he and his wife were dating. Yep. He, he said, like, she was lathering on lotion. And he was like, what the fuck? Like, you have a rash? Like, why, why are you putting on so much? You know, and she was like, no. Because like, so I'm, I'm going to be ashy otherwise. Exactly. And he was, he was like, ashy? Like, what are you talking about? And she was like, ashy? She was like, if you don't use lotion, I bet you you're ashy. He's like, I'm not ashy. And she went over, scratched his skin. All these white flakes came up. She's like, see, that's ashy. Now, if that happened to me, everybody can see it, so I have to put lotion on. And so he was like, and then he gets one of those super, like, funny extension off of that about how white people just missed out on a lotion seminar you know and blah 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 blah. he's like really really hilarious but i think the right the moral of the story is when you have diverse friend circles and diverse experiences like it just broadens your understanding you know i remember the first time i went to brazil um Mm -hmm. i went down in 2000 uh i do a martial art from there and my teacher he lives there so i went down um, to visit and to train and blah, 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 blah. And I was down there with a, with, with a bunch of friends from here in the States. And, you know, I grew up in, for U S standards, I grew up poor. I grew up dirt poor, like mm-hmm. just whatever. There was no need for the mellow job. Not compared to Brazil. And then I went to Brazil and I saw poverty in Brazil and I'm like, Oh, right. And he just brought my, my brain and my understanding in this very, very different way. And so, you know, you gain a lot when you when you expand beyond this very narrow um, definition or, or group of uh, social net or a very narrow social network um, because there's there's just so much more that's out there in this world that you can benefit from. And as black people, I think it's something that be really helpful for us to. Um, I know outside of our narrow social network, it can be a really hostile place. So you have to proceed. Don't don't proceed recklessly, but you know make sure that you push yourself outside this very narrow understanding because there's a big wide world of amazing experiences and information and cool people out there that you could meet and interact with. 
Oh yeah, for sure, man. Well, here's the thing about it, you know, not not to just be biased, but black people, I think, are the ideal cult, ideal cultural ambassadors in in the world. And the reason why is, I mean, think about it like this: black people come in so many different, not just hues, but from just so many places in the world. Right. And when you're talking about the American experience, look, I I understand that while I don't look like George Floyd from the outside in, a lot of what George Floyd lived with, it either touched somebody that is in my family or, or somebody that's in my really, really, really close friendship circle. And because of that, it's part of my story as well. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but taking that concept and dialing it down a, a notch, right. Where am I going to ever go? Uh, well, you know, aside from like, say, my my wife likes to joke and say that I look like I'm Samoan, like I look like <laughs> The Rock or something like that. But I mean, aside from American Samoa, where am I going to go when most people look like me? Right. Right. Very few places. I mean, I remember there was a time when I was in when I was in law school. Right. There was a guy who I was friends with at the time and we were considering um, going to play some ball. And so we go get dressed. We go to this court. He, his, his, uh, he's a white guy, by the way. Uh, we go to the court and we had, dr- we had driven there and we, we, we drive it to the court and he looks out the court and he's like, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to play anymore. Right. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, you know, you, you know how it's going to be, man. Like, you know, they're all black guys and uh, you know, they're going to be like, you know, making fun of me because I'm white and they're saying I can't jump and all this other stuff. And so we actually did not go play ball. Right. That day. Right. Mm. And, and that, that, that situation it ended up messing messing with me, and the the, the kind of tie in from the back end it was that we were we were supposed to consider getting an apartment for the for the for the next school year, and I let about a day or two go by, and I called him up, and I said, you know what, man, I said, you know, I, I'm I'm not gonna live with you next year, and he's like, why not? He's like, what's wrong? And I was like, honestly, man, I said, I, if if I looked at life the way that you just looked at going to play ball the other day, I would never leave my apartment. Right. Do you understand that? Right. But that's, and I just, and I just, and I let it go. Yeah. And that's the definition of privilege though. Right. It's like white privilege inherently. You don't have to ever be in those situations if you don't want to. We're, no, you don't. We're black you people. Don't. We don't have a choice. Like we're routinely in those situations and we get asked. I remember getting asked one time, I was having lunch with some coworkers. This is about a decade ago. And this was before white professionals started moving into Oakland in, in mass numbers. And mm-hmm. Oakland has always been an amazing city. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are parts of it that are as advertised. <laughs> Still. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But there are all the other parts that just people have never known about. Oakland has always been really nice, really amazing city. And so um, long story short, we're at lunch and they were asking about, you know, Oakland and this particular neighborhood because they heard there's a cool restaurant. It's like, you know, is it sketchy? And I was like, you know, I'm I'm not the right person to ask, you know. <laughs> and I'll, I'll I'll spare you all the details of you know the kind of back and forth in that conversation. But net, it was like my definition of sketchy and your definition of sketchy is not going to not the meet, same. They're not going to meet in the middle. But you know, here it is. They were like, mm, we may or may not like try this restaurant and because they didn't want to have to subject themselves to potentially being in an environment 
that was predominantly black. Where meanwhile, I'm sitting here at work being asked this question that, that I feel is loaded with unconscious bias and like dog whistle racism. You know, I, I just never, I, I, I don't have the option to say like, I'm not going to go to a place or be in an environment where I'm not going to understand um, the people or feel comfortable with how the people view the world. Like as black right. people, well, we, here, we have to navigate these spaces. Well, yeah. And here's the thing about whiteness as, as a catch-all. You know, it, it, most of the ethnic minorities in this country who became white, their trials are over 100 years ago. You know, so for example, there was a point in time where there was a fine, uh, uh, excuse me, not a fine distinction. It was a very oceanic distinction between you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people and others. And those others included people like Irish people, Jewish people, Italians, you know, so there's a lot of uh, acculturation that that accrued, you know, over a hundred years ago, where now we just have this general catch-all that people are white. Well, the thing about being a minority is, and and, and I I use the word despite really hating that as a catch-all, because I just Mm. think it's, I just think it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a misnomer. It's like you can't yep. you can't compare you can compare, but you can't equate blacks and Asians and you know Latinx and this is all different kind of stuff. But speaking from my experience as a black person, what I can say is when you deal with microaggressions and you know kind of the casual ignorant um, racism, I would liken it to kind of like a mosquito bite. You know, you go out and you get you know. You might not even actually know, you know, because it happens so much right. that you're actually getting stung and it's going to itch for, you know, a short period of time, but it's ultimately not going to kill you. Right. Like the, the, the danger is because like, I, for example, my father, who's 76, right. He grew up in a completely different racial yeah. environment where he was unable to do garden variety stuff like eat at a certain restaurant. For, right. I mean, forget whether or not it's sketchy or not. I mean, you literally legally could not go there. Right. You know, um, you know, he tells me wild, wild stories about because my mother, because her grandmother was Polish. Right. She was a, she was super fair skinned. Right. And a lot of times people just sloppily assume she was white. My dad told tell me a story one time about being low on gas and going to a gas station in Southwest Pennsylvania and the attendant uh, basically turning off the gas uh, and saying that they wouldn't serve him there. And he had to like walk down the road with his gas can to try to get some gas because uh, they'd run out. I mean, so he, that's more of the, you know, Mike Tyson uppercut right. racism. You yep. know, it's just like, it's going to floor you. It's going to scar you in a way that like, you'll never be the same again. Right. Um, the, the kind of stuff that I think that we, um, experience on a day-to-day basis is much more seemingly benign um but it but it can still over the time you know it can affect your psyche and it can really affect the way you have to be very vigilant about how you view yourself in relation to others and knowing what your worth is but i just generally do believe that black people serve as great cultural ambassadors because i mean it's kind of like the paul mooney joke um, for, 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 for people that don't follow, follow his comedy, he, uh, 
he made a joke where, you know, and I won't say the word because I don't want to offend some people, but he said, you know, everybody wants to be an N-word, but don't nobody want to be an N-word. Right, right, right. And I think what he was trying to, what he was trying to say was, was effectively that, you know, everybody culturally borrows from black folks, right? Mm-hmm. But if you, if you use that and you look at it as a black person, as an opportunity, right, you can basically be the, the olive branch extender when it comes to making those kinds of, um, those kind of pathways, because the reality is, is that the average white person is not racist. The average white person is not malicious and they're not trying to necessarily uh, hold you down and look at life as a zero sum game where they get ahead and you stay behind. So, and, 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 and I would encourage anybody, anybody, whether you're a young professional, a seasoned one, a parent, you know, a brother, a sister, whatever, I would encourage anybody who's black, to not carry that cross around your neck yeah. and to think of yourself as that kind of person and, 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 and victim. You, you may be in, affected by this, but like life is, is really a huge uh, ocean of experience to try to go out and enjoy. And you know what? You may actually have to be the initiator. And, you know, in a, in a perfect world, you know, it would be a great kind of, uh, you know, after school special where people just looked at each other the same, they treated each other the same. But at the end of the day, you have an inherent advantage of being a black person if you look at it that way and you treat yourself um, as an ambassador um, to the right, you know, to, to, to the larger world. And I don't mean that in some kind of Bill Cosby yeah, respectability yeah, yeah. politics way where you got to. You know, oh, you don't like that. Oh, I'm sorry. Chico Bates didn't, didn't like that. He don't like Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel you, Chico. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he could get rocked. But yeah, so yeah. The, the only thing the only thing I would add there though is about the average white person is, is not racist. I do think that the there's a system that's in place though, where there's an inertia of systemic oppression. And so there's a compounding Absolutely. interest of the land grants that were given to white people a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago. The the compounding interest from slavery, the compounding interest from the prison industrial complex, the compounding interest of the taking of Native Americans' lands from coast to coast. And so this system has, um, has the compounding interest, both positive and negative, and the way it's distributed, you have folks who are not racist, but they're still getting those dividend payments, so to speak. That's Sure. White privilege. Sure. Um, and sure. I think that what's what becomes important, though, is for us to not be in this victim mindset, because one of the things we, we do, we have we have plenty of benefits, including standing on the shoulders of giants who have who have endured to to bring us to this particular place. And when you endure what we have collectively endured and you still have your your sanity and a, a sense of self which was something you were speaking to a few minutes ago, was like really understanding like who you are and having that sense of self so that you can have some peace in spite of whether it's the mosquito racism or the Mike Tyson, you know, uppercut form of racism. If you have a sense of self, uh, you can still find peace. And if you are a black person who has endured and come through like what we've come through and you have a sense of self, you are keenly prepared. You are battle tested, and you are you are you're capable of being this ambassador you speak of because you can you can go to Buckhead and you can go to Bankhead, right? Like sure, you can navigate between 
those two spaces. And I think that is something that's, that's a positive that comes with our, with our blackness. And that, that leads to, that leads to um, a perfect segue um, as, as we go to wrap this up. I have, I have four questions I like to ask all of my guests. And the first one is, is about maintaining our cool, whether it's the mosquito racism or the Mike Tyson racism. When, when we're exposed to it, um, losing your temper oftentimes is only going to make things worse for you sure. as, a, as a black person. So the, the question is, can you tell me a time in which someone has gone low and you took the high road and it turned out that taking the high road was in your best interest? Well, you know, I, I think I inadvertently, the, the one time that's coming to mind, <clears throat> I think I inadvertently uh, already gave away with the basketball example. Mm. Um, and the reason, the reason I would consider it as such is because, uh, number one, I, I, I think in his mind, you know, he was looking, he probably, if I'm, if I'm being 100% honest, in his mind, he probably saw me not wanting to live with him as a, as a response to you know, him not wanting to go to play as the court is like a, as a, as a friendship betrayal, you know? And I saw it as something a little bit more insidious and problematic. Um, and I, and because I knew it had to do with race because that was what he said it had to do with. Right. It was hard for me to give him the benefit of the doubt and walk away because I felt like I would have been shorting myself. Right. And for me as a person, you know, there's, there's two things that you're always going to give me. Uh, because I'm going to demand it of myself. I'm going to demand that you can listen to what I say and you can rely on it because I have my word in my balls and you're going to always give me mm. respect principally. I, I demand to be respected. Yep. Man. Okay. And I love this. I'm not going to love the Scarface reference. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, you're going to always give me respect. And as a result of being able to rely on what I'm saying, I'm going to I'm going to hope that you're going to give me the benefit of the doubt as a, as a response to that. So I, I would say that, you know, I went high in that regard because it would have been easy for me to just tear into him and tell him why he was a terrible person and all this other stuff. But I thought I was able to handle the situation in a way where I communicated the divide between how we saw the world. But I took it. um I took it moving forward in a way that didn't necessarily um, have to completely beat him down in the process. Right, right, right. I dig it. Um, if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? My journey in one word. You know, it's funny. I always feel like, so I'm a, not, not, I, 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 I'm going to answer the question in a, in a circular way. Uh <laughs> But I'm a big, I'm a sports guy, and my, my two big sports are NBA and in turn um, um, soccer. I watch a lot, of, a lot of English Premier League, and I always laugh because <clears throat> the quality of the the questions and the responses are just so different between the two sports. Mm. Like in the NBA, the halftime or the after the game announcer will just be like, "Hey, coach, uh, you know LeBron's out there killing you tonight. You know." He, he, he's everything. He, he can run, jump, run faster, jump higher. You know, how, how do you really respond to that? Right. Uh, and the guy's like, uh, I don't know. We just try to stop him. He's LeBron. There's not much you can do. Conversely, you know, when you look at the, the soccer questions, they're a lot more thoughtful. And I, and that's how I would, you know, ask your, they'll ask a coach, if you could describe today's match in one word, right. how would you describe that journey coach? Right. So I, 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 that's, that's, that's where I would, um, 
I, I, I would compare it. But my, my, my journey has just been interesting. And, and I hope it remains as such. Uh, um, you know, I, I'm, today is the 12th of September. I'm one day shy of, you know, celebrating my, my 39th year on this earth. Uh, and, um, you know, I, when I was in school, in business school, I, I took a class called Authentic Leadership. And it talked a lot about um, career and life arcs. And so if I look at, you know, my first 30 years, I would consider that to be, you know, the spring of my life. Um, and then the summer, you know, would be probably up until, uh, you know, my, my, my 60th birthday. Um, 60 to 70 is probably my, my fall. And then, you know, the rest is winter. But I, I bring that up to say that, you know, I'm still in the phase of my life where I want to be growing, expanding, um, learning how to give back to others, helping out uh, in ways that are meaningful and impactful to those around me. Um, and although everything hasn't been necessarily the most easy, um, it's always been worthwhile and, and, it, and at the end of the day, interesting. Nah, it's a, it's a great word. Like, uh, I've, I've never, I think it's the most unique word that's been given yet was which and there's there's something that's poetic about interesting right because it's about exploration it's a it's it, it's not about like descriptive path right and if you play back you know your journey like it, it hasn't been scripted but it has been interesting so i appreciate you sharing that and then of course uh last question i have for you i'll probably let you get out of here is of all the bs that comes with you know battling systemic racism as a black man you know i still wouldn't trade it for the world like i love being black and i love being a black man so um what is it that you love most about being a black man well i think for me and this is something that you and i discussed in the in the lead up to our chat today you know one one of my favorite books of all time if not my most favorite is the invisible man by ralph, ralph ellison and uh you know for those who haven't come across this book before you know the protagonist in the story he ends up physically uh living in the sewer and kind of being an outcast uh in in this in this novel and that ends up being a, a very uh vivid explanation uh, and kind of metaphor for, for how race is treated um, and how you're treated as a person of a, of a subjugated race um, in this country oftentimes. But for me, I think there's a lot of seamlessness. You know, I, I, I feel personally empowered as a Black person. I feel like I have the ability to walk in any room. I think you said it beautifully and perfectly earlier. I can go from Bankhead to Buckhead. Um, and I don't feel out of place. I can go from the tip of Maine to the boot of California and I feel like I belong. There's never an environment where I, as a black person feel like I can't hold my own. Oh. And the reality is, is that I think growing a black and understanding that there are people, and I said it earlier, there are people in your family that maybe have gone to prison. There are people that are poor. There are people that are less fortunate. It does to use your term, make you battle tested. And it really makes you, or, or encourages you to always approach each experience in life, having the proper perspective to be able to assess what your opportunity really looks like. And I think if you, you know, not to be Pollyannish, but if you look at it, you know, as a kind of a glass half full type of, um, you know, 
type of way, you can you can look at life as a black person, not as a burden, but as a beautiful thing to be celebrated and to try to help other people uh, experience. Yeah, I think that's great. I think when you when you experience, I mean, as an analog, like me getting to see poverty in Brazil helped me understand, like, okay, like there there's injustice and there's some some things that need to be improved upon in the U.S., but things things weren't that bad like where i grew up relative to brazil i think the uh relative to poverty in brazil i think the as an analog like having it been through and experienced what we've experienced it allows us to enjoy and appreciate the good things that that exist in life Right, like, yeah, you want you you want to know what oppression is? Oppression is living in a hundred hundred degree climate and not having central air. I grew up with central air. Okay, I wasn't right. I wasn't that oppressed. Right, right, right. That's <laughs> that's, uh, that's so real. Well, man, Ryan, I I so appreciate you hopping on here and sharing your story and give us all this insight to your very interesting journey. I think the, the listeners has been on just got to go along with you for a ride and and learn a lot. I know I thoroughly enjoyed it i look forward to putting this out into the world and then listen to it several times over because it's such an amazing and impressive story i wish you all the best of luck as you continue on in your interesting journey your amazing career and let me be one of the first people to wish you a happy birthday man it's a day early but you know, i want to make sure that you know wish you a happy birthday and hopefully you uh, you do something special to celebrate yeah, thank you, sir. It was a pleasure being on. I, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. And, you know, especially in a time right now where we're all uh, remotely trying to stay uh, nurturing the various flowers of our relationship, you know, hopefully this serves as a, as a, as a, as a good uh, welcoming, but also, uh, you know, soothing conversation for anybody who, who's looking to learn a little bit more about the Black experience. Awesome, man. Well, hey, you, you uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon.